Our very own limitations. How are they formed and how do we smash through them to discover our own limitless potential? This is the Limitless Man Podcast. Go for it. All right, so welcome everyone. This is the first episode of the Unlearn Your Potential podcast and a very, very special guest. First first guest, Con. First guest, man. Thank you, mate. That's a good mate of mine, Mr. Con Prokos. Thank you, Simon. Um, Yeah, mate, it's been a long time coming. It's something you've been speaking about. Well, we've been talking about doing a podcast for quite some time. Only a couple of years, so, old, man. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, mate. But uh, well, we've known each other for a while. Even the way we met, mate, that was that was that was a that was a good one. I remember doing a mindset, um, what what we call it, a seminar, I guess, or a, a course. We met. We met through the Mojo Masters Thrive Time. Yeah. So, yeah, at, that's at the right. Time, and, at, that, at that event, there, yeah. I was actually crewing at that event. I reckon. So I was I was yeah. part of the team. Yeah, I was sort of volunteering and helping out. Yeah. Yeah, and I was uh, just I think on day three I was sort of struggling. On first two days I struggled immensely. I was just thinking, this I'm not learning anything I don't know here. Um, so I started to get a little bit frustrated. But then day three came where we had to speak about emotions and stuff that I've uh, I've come to realise that I've suppressed. Um, and that sort of broke me and I remembered going outside and I actually just wanted to jump off the balcony and go home and that, the balcony wasn't too high it was only one story so it wasn't nothing crazy but um, the special moment and what what I really uh, came to value you a lot is the fact that you followed me out and uh, put your hand over my shoulder and uh, just in a moment of need mate you were, you were a great support um, and yeah, I just knew there was something special about you from that moment, and it's good that we've remained friends since then, um, and just watched each other grow over the years as well. So yeah, that was uh, that was a special moment for me, and uh, uh, like yeah, I can't say thank you enough for for that time there, Simon. So cheers, mate. I really appreciate that, man. And um, we'll we'll get to how. We'll get to the lead up to that event and how you ended up at that event in a sec. But just on that, because you brought it up, um, I just want to tell a story because I do remember you were struggling in there and I went out, um, you went outside, so you left. Now you were pacing up and down in there. I don't know if you remember. So we're in this room, right? You're pacing up and down and you've gone outside, right? And so you've got like the coordinators there. You've got Jess there who was obviously, you know, running the event, you know, Michael who's hosting the event, Mojo at the front there. You got Justin and Christian and, and they're all looking, we're all looking at each other. And Michael, uh, Michael tapped me on the shoulder and he said, now you seem to be getting along with this guy. You know, he goes, do you want to go out there? And I said, you want to send me out there with him? <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, if you're not you're watching this, said, this bloke's six foot three and about what, 95 kilos, a hundred kilos. <laughs> 105, mate. Mate, I thought you were going to throw me off the balcony, mate, if I came out there. So. Uh, hard, hard shell. Uh, what do they say? Hard shell, soft setter, mate. Yeah, no. It was, uh, it, it was, is it, that how it happened, eh? Yeah, that's exactly no, that was a, happened, that, yeah, so. that was a good moment, mate. That was a good moment. Uh, that's good. So talk, like, just tell us, right, like leading up to this, so we met at a, 
you know, personal development event. It's a mindset event, which is pretty much like that. That's the theme of this podcast. It's about, you know, learning our own potential and, you know, unlearning what you think you know about yourself. Um, tell us from the start, man. Like, tell us about your childhood. I know you had some dramas, you know, growing up, especially yeah. in your teenage years. Um, you know, you're pretty probably more in my early adult, adult, adult years. Uh, I don't know, looking back at my childhood, um, I think my parents did the best they could of what they what they had. Um, we bought a fish and chip shop like every good Greek family does. Yeah. Um, I was in grade five when we bought the shop, so I had to move schools. So um, we moved to Taparu. Um, and just for the next 17 years, well, we owned the shop for 17 years. Um, just to see my parents work so hard day in, day out. Um, it just taught me a real strong value for work ethic. And I come to the conclusion now as an adult that I, I think work ethic is it's something you either got or you don't. I think everyone believes that they work hard until they see the next person working harder. Um, I know it's something that you can improve over time, but unless you physically see it um, and know what it looks like. Um, so, yeah, cut a long story short. Childhood was great. I, all I wanted to be growing up was a soccer player. Um, and I did have some talent in, in that field. It didn't transpire. So, you know, at the age of 22, um, I, had, I purchased my first business at 19. So, look, going back to my childhood, nothing there, mate. Mum and dad were great. Um, probably just growing up in the back of a fish and chip shop since the age of 11 all the way until I probably moved out at 18. Uh, we had one bedroom. Me and my sister and my brother shared that. Um, and just seeing my mum, my especially my mum, wake up from 8 a.m. and go to bed 10, 10 p.m. every day, Monday to Sunday. It just gave me a strong um, value to to know that you know, we've got to work hard for success. So in that regard, childhood was, 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 was good. Um, I know my parents always did the best they can with what they what they had. As a parent myself now, I, I do look back at some of the decisions they made and, and, and you know, sort of scratch my head and say, well. But, you know, I've said that a few times now. I definitely believe they did the best what they could with what they knew. Um, and being migrants from another country, um, I think all they wanted to do was just um, set themselves up financially and, 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 and work hard. Um, unfortunately, when we purchased the shop in 1989, the, the recession hit in 1992 or 93, something like that. Um, so, yeah, it just became something where, you know, it wasn't going to make us rich by any stretch. But, um, you know, put food on the table, the bills were paid. Um, but, yeah, to be there, for, to sacrifice 17 years in that scenario, um, this is something that I wouldn't ever do to my children. But again, like I said, it, it taught me work ethic, and as an adult now, I, I value that strongly. Yeah. So, sort of my undoing sort of came um, the age of twenty-three, where I got married. I uh, fell in love with a girl when I was seventeen, and we were together for eight years. When we got married, and then just three months into that marriage, um, I found out she was cheating on me for two years. And uh, that broke me. And at that point in time, I think in my life, I had 
like every 23, 24 year old would have is plenty of ego um, and probably too much pride. And then, uh, you know, your friends knowing, your family knowing that, you know, your, your wife's cheated on you, just, it just broke my pride, smashed my ego. And it took me seven years to probably recover from that, um, to be honest with you. Um, I remember that probably the first year after finding out, I mean, she just walked out on me. It was not even a conversation on why, who, when. Um, she did admit that it was been going on for two years and simply vanished. So I had no answers. I had to sort of piece everything together. And to be honest with you, that really screwed up my, my mental health. Um, I spiraled into depression, um, started using illicit drugs. How old, how old did you start using drugs? Probably 23. Okay. 23. So up until 23, um, all I ever wanted to be was a professional soccer player. Yeah. So, you know, I was always dedicated to my training, um, you know, looking after my body and stuff like that. Drugs were nothing, you know, you know, was in my life. Um, never grew up around it and stuff like that. But probably the reason I probably jumped into it, um, you know, after the initial breakup, for the first year, I, I, I couldn't socialise. I'd basically go to work, come home um, and just keep to myself. Um, I was I was ashamed, uh, and looking back, I was ashamed of myself. But now, as a, I mean, looking back at it now, I had nothing to be ashamed about. Just at that point in time, I felt ashamed for what she did to me. Um, so I just hid 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 from the world, I guess. Um, and then one day, a, a friend, you know, introduced uh, ice to me, and for the first time in in my life, I could. It, it pulled me out of my comfort zone. I started going out. I started meeting new people. Um, so funny as it sounds, it actually did help me. But just like with any with any illicit drug or anything, uh, too much of anything is not good for us. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, it probably the first probably one or two years I did have a handle on it. It was just something I'd probably do every weekend or every second weekend. Um, and then it started to spiral out of control. Um, as my mental health deteriorated more so as well. So, you know, by the end of it, it was a, it was a daily thing and probably a habit of up to $3,000 a week. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Money, but, um, Three grand a week. Yeah, $3,000 a week yeah. on the amount that I was using. So, you know, during that period of, in my life, again, in hindsight, I, mean, I would never change anything. Um, what it taught me about myself, um, what it taught me about others, um, even now as a personal trainer and uh, as a mentor to others. Um, it's taught me to have a lot of compassion um, and sympathy for a lot of other people that are struggling in similar situations. So it's made me a very, it's made me a better coach. It's made me a better person. Yeah. Um, it's 10 years now clean for me. Um, and it's something that I I don't think about, um, care about. I don't associate myself with anything that's remotely got anything to do with it. Um, you know, I've had a few friends die. I've had some friends that have never snapped out of it. I've got family members uh, that are, you know, in jail 
for it. Um, so I've seen, I've really seen the, um, you know, how detrimental it can be to someone's health, life, family. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, with most drugs, you know, they all have the potential to 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 ruin families and, and ruin the person. I think ice is a ice and heroin would have to probably be your two biggest ones. Um, but again, at, at that point in time, it was a relatively a new drug, so none of us sort of probably knew, um, you know, the seriousness of the potential mental health side effects to it. Obviously, now you know, 15 years on from when I started using, um, there's a lot more knowledge, and you know, there's a lot more education out there, and it's good to know that, you know, you know, that the, um, even the media, the, the, the resources are out there to, 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 you know, to educate the young kids to know how much of a detrimental uh, drug it is. Um, my nickname for it was actually the devil's dandruff. So, um, yeah, man. So that's, that's where, that's where that went. Um at its at its worst was 2008 um, when my father uh, was at his wits end. Being a migrant, um, he doesn't know too much about you know the public health system and stuff like that. And his English isn't 100% good either. So he just basically reached out to a friend and 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 told his friend, "Look, my son's struggling. This is what he's going through." And that that friend at the time suggested that they are. Uh, they call the police. Um, so again, it was something. You know, I, I guess if my dad had it all again, it was wouldn't be something that he'll do again. Because I know at the time he didn't know what else to do, but the fact that when the police came, they actually took me away and I was detained under the Mental Health Act and um, taken to Greenside. I, I was taken you? to. Sorry, man. Sorry. I just didn't mean to jump in, but like, can you? I know you've told me this story before. Yeah, mate. Tell me the story. So you're you're at home, or basically you you you've arrived at home, like you've come back home. Oh, uh, so I'm uh, I'm uh, my dad's called me to his mate's house. Yeah. So I've 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 been using that day. It was a uh, it was a Friday. Um. Oh, look, I got that good at it at the end where you you, you couldn't tell whether yeah. I was on it or if yeah. I wasn't. The only time you could tell as if it was drug fuel where I hadn't slept for a few days. Yeah. At that point, you know, it was uh, I had a good sleep the night before, so I was fine. Um, I used um, pretty early in that morning, and I, I think I got a phone call around 10 a.m. It was my dad, and he said, "Come down to Alex's house. I need to talk to you." So I went down there, and uh, Alex came out, and he goes, "Look, mate, we're gonna." You know, obviously, we've got a few issues, a few problems. Your, your dad's spoken to me. Um, we need you to go home after this. And I think, if my memory serves me correct, they didn't tell me the police were there. I think I was just going home to speak, you know, to my mum, I think. You didn't know. So when I got there. no idea. Yeah. Yeah, so they were lying to me. Um, and sort of look, knowing my character and, and how how um, you know having anger issues and stuff like that, I think that was such, probably invited me to Alex's to soften the blow to make sure I'm going to be okay. Go home, speak to your mum. 
So I had no idea what was going on here. So I've rocked up to mum's house um, and there's police waiting there with an ambulance. So I said, oh, here, here we go. So they've told me to sit down. Obviously, Dad said, you know, he's been using for years. Um, it's out of control now. Um, you know, and what I mean by out of control, living next door to your parents, they got to see a lot. Yeah. So, again, as, as a parent now, um, I can see how much hurt and damage I would have done to them to see their son in that state for so long. Um, to rewind back a little bit too, Simon, um, in 2006, 2007, I tried to commit suicide as well. Yeah. Um, I just lost the will. I didn't, I didn't care. I didn't care about myself. Um, and the only way I could think of a, of a peaceful way to do it was just to take a whole heap of painkillers and sleeping pills and anything I could get my hands on. Yeah. Uh, which I did, which I did. Um, and lucky enough for me, um, my body rejected all the all the pills that I swallowed and I just chucked them all up. Um, ended up in hospital. Um, and the worst part probably for me now is my mum had to see that whole, whole event with her own eyes. So she was there the whole time. My girlfriend at the time had called her and told her what, I, what I'd done. Um, and I remember chucking up in my lounge room um, and just seeing all the pills still there. Um, but look, knowing that my mum had to sit there and witness all that sort of still breaks me now, but I'd like to think that I've uh, gone a long way to mend that, which I think I have. Um, so, yeah, that, that happened. Um, fast forwarding back to the police and my parents, um, they sold it to me as you're going to go in the ambulance, we're just going to take you to the hospital to do a checkup, check in on you, see how everything, you know, how your bloods are, your heart rate and stuff like that. So I bought into that, um, went in the ambulance. And then when we arrived there, I had two security guards flanked me on either side of me. And I was like, hang on, what's going on here? And that's when they dropped the bomb on me and said, you've been detained under the mental health. Okay. Uh, um, and at that point in time, I got access to a phone call. I rang up mum and I, I said to her, if you think this is going to help me, you've just made things worse. And when I get out, I'm going to make sure things are a lot worse. Again, looking back at that, that's probably the worst thing I've ever said to my mum. It broke her. Yeah. When my father, I know all he wanted to do was help, but he had no idea that they were going to take me away. So Whilst I'm, I'm away here now, they've injected me, I don't know, with something. And I've woken up. I'm, I'm at Queen Elizabeth. They've injected me with something and I've woken up in Glenside. Like no no memory at all. You just wait, you yeah. injected you yeah. and you're waking up. And... I remember just being at Queen Elizabeth. I remember getting an injection and then waking up in Glenside. Glenside Mental Health, yeah. which is there's one wall between us and the Glenside criminally insane as well. So I'm right next door to that, that ward. Probably the worst part and probably the funniest part, I wouldn't even use the word funny, yeah. um, was at that point in time, I'm looking back at it now, I realise how crazy I was and how crazy everyone else was that was in there with me. But in the midst of it, I didn't see that. 
I didn't see it at all. Um, there was people walking around um, pretending dolls were babies. I remember one lady, you know, there was a two metre by two metre whiteboard and she'll write on the whiteboard all day, every day in the smallest little bits of writing that it will take up the whole two metres by two metres by the end of the day and it just looked crazy. If you can just work, you know, we're talking about, you know, the same size letters that you'd write on an A4 piece of paper on a two metre by two metre. Um, and they're all um, phrases of the Bible. Again, looking at that, I was, you know, in looking back at that, I was like, wow, man, these people are crazy. But at that point in time, I couldn't see it because I was like them. Another good dude would make a coffee and dump, dump a biscuit in that coffee and just stare and laugh at it for four hours on end. Wow, now, man. these guys obviously had, you know, ranging from schizophrenia to the same as me, drug-induced psychosis and 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 other mental health issues. My point was, well, my point is that whilst I was just like them, at that point in time, I couldn't see it. So that's what makes it sort of scary. Um, I sort of worked out pretty quick that if I continue with my story, which my story was my phone's the hat, people are following me. I see it and hear it from others now that, you know, that have cooked themselves on drugs, so to speak. You legitimately had those thoughts, man, lots that you were being Absolutely, watched. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, and I, I think it all stems from just being paranoid, from knowing you do the, you're doing a wrong, the wrong thing. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you're conscious about knowing you're doing the wrong thing, of course you're going to be heightened with your senses of police, people following you, uh, your phone's being tapped. And then because you've already got those thoughts, they escalate and they turn into bigger bigger problems. And, you know, I used to always have a saying, I'd rather be paranoid than stupid. Yeah, okay. So, look, looking back at it, it was complete um, bullshit. But at that point in time, I, I believed it. So they obviously wanted to know why I was there and why my mental health had deteriorated so much. And... These are the things I told them. But I quickly sort of pulled my head in and realised if I keep going with this story, I'll end up being here for a long time. The minimum stay at that point in time is once you've been detained under the Mental Health Act, um, the minimum stay is two weeks. So even if you're fine, they'll, they won't let you out for less than two weeks. So knowing that, I was like, all right, you're going to have to change your tune here, man. You can't keep saying the same thing. You're going to have to, you know, pull your head in. So although I still believed it, Simon, I started just saying it was a different story. Look, man, I'm, I think it's the drugs. These things are all, you know, just in my head. They're not true. Um, so that started to work for me. And then uh, after five days, I was uh, moved to Cramond Clinic. So luckily for me, I got out of Glenside. And just one thing that sticks with me a lot, in Glenside, it actually looks exactly like like you see in the movies, like uh, the mental wards. So we like this they got padded huge rooms. room. Sorry, mate. They got padded rooms. Like, do they have like the pads on the? There wall? are padded rooms in, in if, if 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 they if they know you're suicidal or you'll do harm to yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, I wasn't in one. The room I was in 
It was probably a 10 by 10 meter room. It was huge. And it just had one bed tucked in the, in the, in the back corner. And that's what just made it, you know, eerie. I had one window with bars on it. And that's just something I just remember vividly. There's just a massive room with one bed tucked in the corner. Exactly what you see in the movies, man. <laughs> yeah, mate, exactly. You know, and yeah, I remember one guy breaking into my room at three o'clock in the morning to ask me for a cigarette. And I was like, you know, what, what the fuck, David? What's, what's going on here? How did he get into oh, your room? Sorry, Con, sorry, Con, I, I woke you up. And then when I woke up, I found out he'd been, he'd, he'd been going into other people's rooms. <laughs> oh, this is funny. He's taking shits in people's bath in people's showers. <laughs> Luckily for me, he didn't do that in my room. But th- th- these are the types of people that were in there, um, genuinely people that had genuine mental health issues, like I said, ranging from schizophrenia right through. For me, it was drug-induced psychosis, so I started to feel pretty bad that I've caused this myself. Um, and again, it, it all spiraled from depression and then using drugs. Um, but the, the biggest game changer for me was when I was in Cramond Clinic, um, my grandfather come to see me, come to visit. And again, my grandfather, a migrant from Greece, he fought in two world wars. I had the utmost respect for him. I've named after him. His name was Gosper as well. Um, so I had a lot of love and a lot of respect for my grandfather. Um, and his English wasn't the best either, but I remember him just sitting down with me. He, he sort of held my hand. And he wasn't an affectionate man at all, at all. And he just said to me, can't you see what you're doing to yourself is killing the rest of us? And in that moment, Simon, that's just, that was the most pivotal point of my life. Because up until that point, I know it might sound crazy and dumb, because I had no care for myself, whether I lived, died, whatever, I didn't care about anyone else. I didn't care for myself. But once I realised that me doing this to myself is actually killing the people that love me. Once I sort of understood that, like in that moment, it all changed. And I promised myself, I remember going back to my room after he left and said, this is it, never again. Now that I know this, you know, my actions are killing the, the other, the, you know, my parents, my granddad, my brothers and sisters. Um, from that point on, I've used two times since then. Um, so I did use one, two times after that, and now it's been 10 years since I ever did it. And I definitely put my, uh, you know, changing my mindset completely around that down to that moment. And when Murray fell pregnant to, to, to our, to our first daughter. So at that, at that point in time as well, um, I had met Mari, my wife now, um, and because I had scars of being cheated on, again, being on drugs and not being stable mentally, I started to fabricate stories in my own head that Mari was doing the same thing. So um, that got crazy in itself. So, you know, when I was taken away to Cramming Clinic and Glenside, we had stopped seeing each other at that point in time. 
And I thought, that, you know, that relationship was, was dead and gone. I'll probably never see her again. Mm. I used to think about her a lot, but I knew it was me that stuffed that up and, you know, I just moved on with my life. Um, at that point in time as well, Simon, I'd, I'd put a lot of my mental health um, down to blaming her because I I'd, I'd, I'd total belief that she was cheating on me. Um, so when the, when the doctors would ask me, you know, what's going on, why, I'd always bring her up, blame her for everything. Um, now, fast forward to, I, I, I stayed there for three weeks. I remember speaking to a counsellor there and I said, look, let's be honest, how long is this going to take for me to start feeling normal again? And he says to me, Con, where you're at, it's going to be about a year. And I just, I don't know, man, that, that just sunk me just to know that, you know, this isn't something I can fix real quick. Yeah. You know, I deteriorated mentally in my mental health so, so much. Um, you know, it doesn't get any lower than suicide, I guess, or trying to commit suicide. Um, again, blaming everything on Mari. She's doing this to me. And these are all untrue. These are all legitimately untrue uh, facts. Yeah. We had broken up. We'd stopped seeing each other. It was probably three months that I'd even saw her before I was in Glenside. I probably didn't even know that she even knew I was in there. Mm. Anyway, I got out on the Friday. So, you know, I collected my thoughts. Um, I stabilised. I mean, it was an opportunity for me not to use drugs. Obviously, you can't use drugs in there. Um, and for that, I'm very grateful. And, um, you know, Dad did make the you know, in, in hindsight, made the best decision for me. He removed me from an environment that I that was toxic, that I couldn't get out of myself. Yeah. And because I had three weeks of not using and three weeks to just, you know, clear my head, Yeah. Um, you know, it made a big difference. So I got out on the Friday and, and lo and behold, like the last person I'm ever thinking about at this point in time is Mari now. For me, in my head, it was a relationship that I, you know, I wish I had it all over again. I loved it, but, uh, you know, I stuffed it up, I guess. Yeah. So in my head, I'd let it go. Now, I got out on the Friday. My grandfather rings me up because he only lived two doors down, and he says, he used to call me fellow. We used to call each other fellow. And he goes, fellow, I want to buy a new TV. Can you come to me to, to Harvey Norman's? I said, yeah, sure, Pops. I'll be there in, in five minutes. Just let me whack my shoes on. I put my shoes on. I opened my front door. And at that exact very moment, Murray drove past my house. So I'm like, well, like, what the hell is she doing here? Again, in my head, I'm, I blamed her for all this. But you know what? Again, in that moment, for the first time in my life, seeing her drive past made me actually think that this she actually did care about me. Um, so I, I pulled her over. And she came inside. And, you know, we actually spoke. I apologised for everything that I thought was true that wasn't. Um, and she actually told me how much she cared about me and stuff like that. And ever since that day, we've 
we've been together ever since that day. Mm. Again, you know, my grandfather, his whole life never rang me up to buy a TV. You know, just the chances of that, of him ringing me to go help him to buy a TV at that point in time as I'm opening the front door, Mari's driving past. Simon, if I was five seconds the other way, I would have missed that. And maybe this, you know, me being where I am right now would have never eventuated. So I'm a big believer in, 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 in dynamics. I'm a big believer in the universe. I'm a big believer in being a good person. In karma, I'm a big believer in dharma. I mean, a lot of people know about karma. You do bad, bad things come. Uh, unfortunately, not too many people know about dharma as well. When you do good, good comes as well. Yeah. Uh, as much as I was doing bad things to myself, I never mistreated people. I was never one to, to you know, steal, rob, uh, mistreat people. That part of me has always been, um, you know, I've always had good morals and, and good ethics. So I'm, I'm, and I'm proud of that. Um, and not too many people come out of hardcore drug abuse, you know, debt free or without their enemies or people after them. And you know what, as much as, as I had fallen into that, um, I never made any enemies. I never owed anyone any money because I always had a high regard to treat people, you know, the right way. So, where am I going with this? Uh, I guess opening the front door and seeing Mari drive past just in that in that sliding door moment just made me realise, you know, you know, this girl does care. Obviously, I've made up all these things being, you know, unwell in my in my head. Um, you know, and then three months had had gone again. Um, the, the drugs were gone at this stage. I wasn't using nothing. Um, like I said, I only used two more times after I got out of Kremlin Clinic ever. And um, Mari fell pregnant. And again, at that point in time, I was a forklift driver at, 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 a, at a company. Uh, I'd been a forklift driver, to be honest with you, since the 19. So at this point in time, I'm 33 now. Um, I've been a forklift driver for 19 years. I'm at a, at a place where I've been for the last five years. Um, Mari's pregnant. Um, my parents don't know this yet. So, I mean, she's living in, in her house in Athelstan. I'm living down here in Queenstown. And as a gesture of, of, of to say thank you to me for, you know, changing my life, my parents took me to Bali. And uh, during that whole period, I was so stressed because my parents were actually, you know, they were proud of me for the first time and they took me on a holiday. But during that, that holiday, all in my mind, I just needed to tell them that Mari's pregnant, we're having a baby and she's moving in. And I just didn't know how they'll take that, eh? So, you know, it took me probably, we were there for two weeks. The first week I just couldn't sleep. I was like, how am I going to tell them? You know, all these things have just happened in my life. And now this, um, again, and I, I, I worked it up to be a lot bigger than what it was. Um, so I sat down with my father and I said, look, Dad, you know, he knew who Mari was at that point. I said, she's pregnant, she's moving in. And my father just said, son, do you love her? And I said, yes. And he goes, all good. 
So from that moment on, and, and I, look, I really thank my dad for just the way he handled that too. Um, all he cared about is, do I love her? And if you do, mate, we're, we're going to be fine. Move yeah. in. Because, again, I was renting my father's house as well. So I didn't have my own house at that point in time. So, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, fast forward now 11 years and my dad and Murray are probably the best friends. Yeah. Amazing. So, um, yeah. Yeah, mate. Amazing. Um, and, again, uh, once she fell pregnant to um, Susanna, that's when I made the serious uh, promises to myself. Obviously, I had a lot to be ashamed about, you know, who, you know, the choices I've made in life. And I remember at this point in time as well, Simon, I'm 30 kilos overweight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I, I had a, a waist circumference of 45 inches. So mm-hmm. I was a big boy. She's fallen pregnant. Um, and I'm feeling ashamed of myself at this point in time. And I just remember making a, a dead set legitimate promise to me, to myself going, there's no way I'm bringing in a child to this life without them being proud of who I am. So that was what motivated me then to go on my weight loss journey. So I just, that all started from just running around the block. And I remember the first time I ran, again, I'm about 33 at this point in time. I could only run about 200 metres before I was gassed. Yeah. And each day I just chipped at it with the motivation of my my daughter being proud of me as a father. Um, and that's all that motivated me. And even now, when, when I coach my clients, I, I, I continually tell them, add your values to the reason you're doing this. Like whether it's weight loss, whether it's a new job, find yeah. what you value the most and add that to the reason that you want to do something. Let's say it's weight loss. Let's say it's the same scenario as me. I want to get fit. I want to lose 30 kilos because I know it'll make me a better father because my highest value is my kids. Now, as parents, a lot of us think that way. And a lot of us have, you know, our top three values would definitely be our kids. So I like to link, you know, people's values to the reason, they, you know, to achieve their goals because that's what I did. So it started from just a simple run around the block to, you know, running around the whole neighbourhood, to running around the whole suburb, to doing it two, three times. And then I joined the gym and joined Good Life Royal Park. Um, Again, I'm sorting through a lot of things out in my head at this point in time. Um, You know, I sort of had a dead-end job. Unless I worked 60, 70 hours a week, Simon, you know, the money wasn't good. If I I was a full-time worker... You know, but if I only did 40 hours a week, I'd be lucky if I made $700. Mm. Yeah, I get you. So, you know, I've, I've got the kids and stuff like that. So I'd always stay back, do as much work as I could. And just one day, I just I was on my forklift at work, <coughs> and I just see my boss drive in with his, his brand-new Mercedes Benz. And again, another sliding door moment and pivotal point. Just in that moment, I just realised... All I'm doing here is just creating a better life for him. And it's not making a difference to me. I work my guts out, but I'm still, nothing's changing for me. Mm. So all I see is I'm 
the harder I work, the better car he gets, the better house he gets. And uh, instead of blaming, shaming and justifying, like a lot of, uh, I started to see in a lot of my co-workers, I was like, if I want to change this situation, I have the power to change it. No one's going to change for me. I need to take, you know, my life, you know, by the, 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 by the horns and, and, and turn it into what I want it to be. The best part about all this is, you know, prior to, you know, the Kremlin Clinic and the, um, the mental health breakdown and, and stuff like that and Glenside, I, I lacked a lot of courage. A lot, I lacked a lot of self-belief. Um, you know, growing up as a kid and all I wanted to be was a soccer player and not, that didn't transpire. A lot, a lot of, I lost a lot of self-belief in myself. But again, going back to that moment, seeing my boss come in with a brand new car and just saying to myself, the harder I work, just the better life I create for him. I said to myself, what, what? I remember going home that day and just said, well, what are the things you love, Con? What, what do you love doing? And uh, I wrote it down on a piece of paper and it just said training. I love going to the gym. And again, with the gym, Simon, the reason I fell so much in love with it, up until that point, you know, I just had lost. I'd I'd been in love in relationships, lost it through no fault of my own. Someone had cheated on me. I had business, a catering business. I'd lost that because of the the relationship breakdown. Um, I had an R34 GDR Skyline. I had no insurance on it at the time. It got stolen. I lost. So there was a lot of things in my life that I felt with my own perception that I had lost through no fault of my own. So then when I found fitness, I lost 30 kilos. I started putting some muscle on. I started to feel good, look good. For the first time again in my life, I was like, this is something that no one can take away from me. And it was the first thing I've ever found in my life that the harder I work, the better results I get, and no one could ever snatch it away from me. Mm. And that's what made me fall in love with it so much and so passionately to the point now that I've been training every day for the last 10 years. And it's something that I do religiously regardless. A good story. Um, And it it all started from... You know, with all the variables that could happen in life, Simon, you know, with that we can't control, there's so many out there. The one thing we can control is how we feel, how we think, and what we put in our mouth. And if we really simplify, though, you know, simplify it for what it is, I believe that, that that's the truth. So, again, these are my reasons why I fell in love and, and became so passionate about fitness. And now going, I went into the gym um, on that day with these thoughts, you know, saying, you know, what other things that I love and it was was training. And uh, I see a, a notice board. I mean, I've been training at that gym for about two years up until this point, and I never saw this this board. So I've walked in and I see this board. It says, become a personal trainer. And I was like, wow, you know what? I could probably be good at this. I love it. There's enough there. So I went to the front office and I said, you know, I'd like to apply to become a personal trainer. How much is it? And they got back to me. It was $2,600. 
and I checked my bank account and I had $2,607 in there. So I sort of saw that as a sign. And I said, I've got to do this. I've just said this, I've got to do it. So I paid for it then and there. Now, from when I paid from it to when the course started, I had three months. So I needed to wait three months. During that three months, I continually had this reoccurring dream. Uh, it's probably a bit hard to describe now because we're on a podcast, but visually, um, where the gym is, where the gym ended up being, across the road, there's uh, it's called Seaton Mowers or still. It's called Steel Seat and Mowers. And I kept having a dream that I was stuck on that side of Port Road oh, and yeah. I was trying to crawl over, over the road. And with all my might and all my strength, I just couldn't get over here. So I was on the road. I'm, I'm on all fours and I'm trying to crawl over, over the road. And every time I had this dream six times and I'd always wake up and think to myself, why am I over, over there? Like, why, why am I having this dream? And why am I always in the same spot? Like, why can't I be in the backyard? Why, you know, why is it I'm on Port Road? I'm on the other side of Port Road. And now, you know, when I first opened up the gym, I, I'd forgotten about this dream. And one day I was training in the gym and it all just, it all came to me. I was like, hang on. I kept having this dream, Simon, that I was across the road and you know, ironically, the, the gym ended up being right where I was trying to get to. So I just thought that that was just fascinating for me. Um, but in that that three months from when I paid for the, the PT course to when I started, that were probably the three three months of, of just turmoil in terms of my head. I you know I had a lot of friends tell me that I'd be no good at it. Mm. Um, I had a How lot of people tell me. How did you cope with that? Because that's yeah, that's a big one. That's co- a big the way I cope with that is that was fine. That's their perception. I know who I am. I don't have um, – I don't want to be average at it. I was going to be great at it. So they can say whatever they wanted. Because, you know, you want everyone to support you, don't you? Like, you know, you, you – Yeah, you absolutely. But, I mean, idea. I, got, I, I sort of got used to people not supporting me through my choices that I made. Yeah. But as much as the drug abuse and the Kremlin Clinic and the Glenside and, you know, this, you know, trying to commit suicide, as much as it was, you know, probably the darkest days of my life, you know, rock bottom, so to speak, when everyone would tell me, you know, their concerns of becoming a full-time personal trainer and, and let's face it, it is a, it is a tough industry. There's not too many that are do it full time. A lot of them do it, you know, they've got a side hustle or the personal training is a side hustle. In that moment with so many people telling me, you know, you sure you're making the right choice and stuff like that. In my own mind, I I'd say said to myself, if I can beat drug addiction, if I can overcome all these things that I've overcome in my life, this is nothing. I can do anything. And I've kept that mindset to this day. So anytime I'm challenged now, I still go back to that and go, hey, if you can do that, I can do anything. And it served me so good where now I even coach it to others. I believe so many people have their own story within their own lives. We all have a story. 
if you can go back to you know some of your hardest days, your darkest moments, your rock bottom, and and I, if, if we can take ourselves there mentally, I can almost promise there would have been a point in time at anyone's rock bottom where they would have thought they would not have got through it, and they did. And now I, you know, when I coach clients now. I, I'll remind them of that. I don't need to know the details of what their rock bottom is. I just go, all right, we've all gone there. We've all been there. Here's my story. I like to share my story so they understand I'm coming from a place of understanding. They don't just come to the gym and see a buff guy that doesn't understand what it feels like to be depressed, overweight, low self-worth. So I like to share my story so they understand the angle I'm coming from. Um. And as you start to build rapport with clients, you, you know, you get to know their story as well. And, you know, the privilege I get with working with so many clients is as much as they're getting their results, you know, losing weight, feeling better about themselves. I believe personal training is a two-way street, not just a one-way street. The amount of knowledge that I learn through my clients is amazing, you know, I've got clients from eight years old right through to millionaires and everything in, in between. And just the knowledge that I get observing, learning um, from all of them, uh, it, it just fascinates me. I, I love people. I'm a people person. Uh, at work, I'm very extroverted. Um, in my personal life, very introverted. So uh, I like to just keep to myself. And, you know, that's my time to recharge. So going back to your question, how did I cope with it? The fact that I had beaten, um, you know, my demons, had proved, I proved to myself that, you know, whatever I put my mind to, I can achieve. Yeah. And that gave me the strength to, to not buy into what, to what they were saying. And in the end, when any, anytime someone's giving you their opinion, they're just giving you their opinion of themselves in that moment. They don't know me. They don't know what I'm made of. Um, I think even these days now, everyone needs that, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Reassurance. They need to be told that they're doing a great job. They need to. I think everyone you know, wants validation, man. Every, everyone. Validation. That, yeah, you know, that's, we, that's the thing, the validation. We all want but it. My validation comes from myself. You know, I know if I haven't put in 100%, I know that. You know, if I'm being slack, I know that if I'm not working hard enough. And over the years, the validation now, you know, I don't mind whether it's, it's you know, no one likes to hear bad validation, but I've got so used to it with my choices of life that, it, you know, it became a norm, like I said. Um, and now I just see so many people always chasing validation with social media and stuff like that. And, and, and you know, that's why mental health for me is is on an upward spiral. Depression's on an upward spiral. Suicide rates are an upward spiral. You know, I can go down another rabbit hole um, and, you know, learning the things that I've learned through doctors and seeing psychologists and stuff like that. The whole system, Simon, is designed to manage. Nothing's designed to cure. Yeah. So you can go potentially. I remember going to the doctors for just a simple um, sick certificate for work, and he asked me why why I'm sick or why do you need the day off and obviously mental health. And he goes, "You're depressed, mate." 
here's a script for antidepressants. Yeah. And not knowing what I know now, I was like, oh, okay, now I know why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. I'm depressed. Oh, it's not me. I've got something wrong. So I started using antidepressants. And, and that again, that just made things even worse because at this point now I'm not feeling low, but I had no more peak experiences anymore. I just felt numb. Um, just to go back in the story as well, when I did leave Cramen Clinic, they told me that I needed to take um, antipsychotic drugs for the rest of my life. And if I stopped taking them, that I need to go to the police station and hand myself in. Pretty These big. are their, their words. Pretty big, man. Yeah, mate. I, I don't even know if I was on a registry or nothing. I had no criminal background. I still don't have a criminal background. They they came to the conclusion that I was in a drug-induced psychosis and I was psychotic. Okay. So in, 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 their, in their professional judgment, I guess they put me on antipsychotics. That was the period where I gained 30 kilos in 12 weeks because of the, the side effect of using that, that medication was you gain weight. Um, so... I remember waking up one morning and just not feeling anything anymore, Simon. I just didn't feel anything. I just felt numb. And I put it down to the drug that they had me on. And I just said, you know what, I'm not taking this ever again. And I never did. The police never contacted me. Mental health never gave a shit. No one ever followed anything up. And I just said, wow, if I was there and I listened to their advice, I would have still been on this, this stuff now. And I would have been under the perception that I can't stop this. Yeah. And what it's taught me now is it's obviously, like I said, it's made me a way better coach. It's made me understand that, you know, doctors' phrases of chemical imbalances. Yeah, they're chemical imbalances, but who's checking hormones, Simon? When yeah. do you ever go to the doctor when the doctor gives you a referral for hormones? It just never happens. I know now... From the age of 30, as men, our testosterone uh, levels diminished 2% from the age of 30. Now, you go to, you know, 45, 55-year-old men who, you know, statistically had probably the highest rate of suicide in that, that 45 to 55 bracket of age. If you look at testosterone levels diminishing by 2% from the age of 30, what do you think's going on? Now, for me, I look at that pattern and I see it's got to have something to do with hormones. Our hormone, as, as men, our testosterone levels drop. So then I started researching testosterone, hormones and stuff like that. I'm just going to have to put my phone on charge, Simon. Just go for it, man. It's all right. Flat for a second, mate. Just give me a minute. That's right. I'm mindful of the time. We'll probably wrap up in about five or ten men, I reckon. Yeah, mate. That's fine. That's fine. So it got me to learn more about um, hormones, and I started to see a big pattern there with with um, low testosterone levels and the link it has for depression. So this is why now I advise all my my male um, clients to go get um, a test, 
a general biochemistry test. And I, I'm going to advise any, any man listening to this as well. Um, if you're feeling down, you're feeling a little bit depressed, your sex drive's a bit low, um, energy's feeling flat, I advise you to go to your doctor, get a general biochemistry blood test as well as an androgen test. Can you just say that again, Con, because the audio is just broken up. I can't hear that well from my end, mate. So if if there's any men out there that are feeling a little flat, sex drive's a little low, energy's um, down, you're starting to gain some body fat, um, you're not feeling quite yourself, my recommendation would be to go to the doctors and ask for a general biochemistry blood tests yeah that's just checking all your your bodily functions yeah um that's a given but the one that they keep missing out on is an androgen test so we're checking testosterone we're checking all these vital hormones to see where they are again as a health coach now i advise all my all my men um that tend to feel you know if they've got any mental health they're feeling a little bit flat they're feeling depressed go get your, your hormones checked and because of my role as a health coach, again, I'm seeing a pattern that all these men that are, aren't feeling too flash are all coming back with low testosterone, yet no one's checking it. Mm. So, again, uh, these are my recommendations. And now that opens up another can because there's no doctors out there that are going to want to prescribe testosterone to men as well. There was one doctor in Adelaide that was doing it and he mm. got shut down. Yeah. So there's, there's, again, the, the system's designed to manage and ain't designed to cure. And now I've learned these through my own struggles, um, and this is why I advise my 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 clients in a in a in a more educated, more formal way. And this is why we say we do fitness differently. Yeah. I like to train people from the inside out. Um, my a philosophy of mine is train the brain and the body will follow. Um, I've seen it time and time again with you know training at Good Life and working at Good Life. Um, when I when I first became a personal trainer there, after I successfully finished my course, um, where a lot of people all they cared about is how they looked. Mm. You know, I want to lose ten kilos so I you know feel great wearing this dress, or you know I want to have abs. Um, and they'll, they'll achieve these goals. They'll, they'll achieve these goals. You know, in fact, I had one client that lost 60 kilos. Um, at the beginning, when we first started training together, she, was, she had depression. Um, within uh, over a year and a half, she had lost 60 kilos. In my mind, I'm thinking, great, she's doing fantastic. And yep. I remember having a consult with her to congratulate her. And she just said, Connor, I don't feel any better. In fact, I feel worse. And that was the moment that drove me to go do Mojo Masters mindset stuff because at that point in time, I felt like I'd let her down because I wasn't concentrating on her mind. I was just physically concentrating on the way she looked. And I thought, again, if she loses 60 kilos, she's going to be a lot happier. Let me help her there. Yeah. The fact that she didn't feel any better then taught me, what am I missing here? And this is another point that I like to make is you've got to ask yourself better questions in life. If you ask yourself better questions, you'll get better answers. 
Now, I could have gone home that day and go, oh, I can't believe she's feeling bad. She's lost 60 kilos. What's wrong with her? Heart, blah, blah, blah. Instead, I came home and said, where did I fail her? Mm. Where did I go wrong? What could I have done better? And it led me to the conclusion where I wasn't concentrating on mindset, which then made me focus, enroll, invest my money into doing these courses so I could train people from the mind out. And ever since I've done that, it's probably been the best money I've ever spent, um, you know, doing these courses. And it's made me a better coach for sure. Because now I concentrate on the way someone feels. If we concentrate on how someone feels, the byproduct will be them uh, looking better. So as much as everyone, you know, you know, 90% of my clients are general weight loss, the first and foremost thing I, I do is always concentrate on how they feel. Yeah. Even with my programming in terms of food, I let them, you know, how are you going to feel when you've made a poor choice of food? How does it make you feel after you've eaten a donut that you know you shouldn't have? I kind of feel like shit. It makes me feel guilty. Let's capture that. Capture the feel. So next time, you know, you've got a good choice of food and a poor choice of food in front of you, ask yourself, how's it going to make me feel? And if we go with the feel, you're more than likely to make the right decisions. So yeah. these are my things now where, like I said, do fitness differently, concentrate on how someone feels and the byproduct will be they looking better. Awesome, man. Just a couple of questions, right, before I let you go. Yeah, so mate. The first one, you spoke about, like, some massive, almost, like, monumental crossroads moments in your life, right? Yep. So you, you, you touched on that a few times, right? Do you believe in coincidences or more, like, synchronicities where, like, things happen for a reason? Because, you know, this is a – you can get into the pretty I mean, argument with people I mean, about this one because, yeah – I mean, does it happen by chance, do you reckon, or is it, do you think it's happening for a reason? I believe a lot of people miss out on opportunities day in, day out because they don't see them and they're not aware. Um, that's a good question, Simon. I, I believe a bit of both. I think sometimes things can be coincidental. Um, and I, I believe when you're off your purpose, you know, I believe everyone's born with a purpose. Um, it's unfortunate for me to see so many people doing things that they love, yet they're not making money from it. Um, and I believe the, the dynamics of the universe are always trying to pull us to our purpose. And that's why probably things may seem coincidental. They may seem, um, you know, by fluke or by chance. Um I can't give you a definitive answer, but I, I believe, you know, the universe is always trying to guide us to our purpose. And that's why these, these things, these, these monumental moments will happen. Yeah. Um, and this is where I say my own philosophy about, you know, I hear it again from a lot of other mentors, you know, what's your two year plan? What's your five year plan? What's your 10 year plan? I'm nothing like that. What my, the way I like to plan is get, on your purpose, get there as quick as you can. Yeah. Find what you love, find your purpose, and then from that moment, take every opportunity that presents itself. Because to be honest with you, if I was to plan out the last five years of my life, there's no way I would have even thought I'd land where I am now. Yeah. With, uh, with my own business, owning, owning my own building, these things wouldn't have happened. Instead, I just wanted to get 
clear on my purpose. My purpose is to help people. I love helping people. Um, how can I do this? I love fitness. Let's combine the both. And then from that moment, take every opportunity that presents itself. One of those opportunities was purchasing the building that the gym's in. Now, I was not ready to purchase it. This was only a year into the business. Yeah. Um, that opportunity presented itself, um, and I did whatever I could to get it, and, and we did, luckily for us. But, again, um, my thing is get clear on your purpose. Take every opportunity as it presents itself. There are going to be a lot of, um, you know, sliding door moments, monumentous you know, moments like you said in your life. Um, is it by chance? Is it by fluke? Is it the uni divine universe? I think it's a bit of everything, Simon. And I think a lot of us tend to miss opportunities because we, we just don't see them for what they are. Wow, thanks, man. Good answer, man. Good answer. And, and then just the last question, right? I mean, there's a bit people listening to this. Well, hopefully there's someone going to be listening to this. <laughs> but pe people that are going through, I want to, I'm going to go through the drugs thing. Now, I've experimented with drugs. All right, so I've yep. tried many different drugs. Um, yep. You know, you said before that, um, you know, it just got a hold of you pretty much, right? And then before you knew it, you were there, you're in a cycle, you're in this routine, right? Obviously, your opinion of yourself would have been pretty low then. So for, for anyone listening to this that's that's maybe there or even experimenting and feel like they're losing grip, right? What What's the one thing or what are the things that you think you can point out that, that actually made the difference where you were able to turn it around or just get that control back? Because obviously you're almost feeling out of control if you're, if you're going through that situation. No, I'm going to use a client that I, that I had about a year ago uh, as, a, as an example. Uh, this gentleman came into the gym um, not to train, just for... Um, um, Mindset coaching. Yep. Um, he lived locally in the area. Um, we didn't know each other. I think he must have just known maybe my background story. Um, you know, as a lot of people do, it's on the internet. It was in the paper. Um, so he, he rang me up and wanted to book in a consult. So I had no idea what I was walking into. So he basically come in. I gave him my questionnaire filled it out and um, struggling with ice addiction. So I went, uh, are you a father? And he says, yes. I said, all right. Now, you can be anything in this world that you choose to be. You can be a drug addict. You can be a freaking, you can be whatever the hell you want. But the one thing you're not going to be is a shit father. And when I put it to him like that, because he obviously would have realised through his own drug addiction and his own choices that um, he wasn't as good a father as he, as he could have been. That guy never used drugs again. Just and I'm still that. friends with him just from that. From linking the value of being From linking, linking. So this is – the way I'll answer that question is, again, you've got to link your highest values to the reason – um, you want to stop, not that you need to stop. There's a big difference from needing to stop and wanting to stop. There's a big difference, Simon, from helping someone that needs help or helping someone that wants help. I don't help people that need help. Yeah. I help people that want it. 
Yeah. I get a lot of phone calls from people that say, can you, can you help my son? Can you help my daughter? Can you help my dad? Yeah, I'm sure I can help them, but they need to ring me or they need to be the ones that take action. I'm not yeah. going to be the one that calls them. That's true. Yeah. Saying that, again, uh, find your highest value. And again, unfortunately, there's so many people out there that don't know what they value. We don't learn this in school, Simon. There's nowhere, there's no courses, and besides the ones that we've done together, um, you know, there's no school curriculum that gets you clear on what your purpose is in life, what your values are. Um, And that's why we're all individual and we're all different. You know, you get so many kids now, ADHD, autism and stuff like that where we segregate these kids, maybe they don't want to learn the way they're learning. Maybe they have no interest in what they're learning. And if we could teach them in a way where they're actually, uh, you know, know, like you see with a lot of people, a lot of kids that have autism uh, or or ADHD, I think, where they'll hate, you know, say maths, but they're brilliant at putting puzzles together or they can read roadmaps from back to front. I just believe that we're all unique. We're all different. Some of us learn differently. Um, Going back to your question is finding what you love and linking it to why, uh, to the reason you you want to change your life, not that you need to. Mine was my kids. Mine was my kids and it purely came down to there was no way I wanted my kids to be ashamed of me as, as a man, as a father. Yeah. That's what motivated me to turn my life around, change it, get fit, get healthy, and actually be a role model to them. Mm-hmm. So my question to anyone struggling with, well, my answer to anyone struggling with drugs, there's no shame in it. There's no shame in it at all. Um, it's no different to me in my own head than someone that gets pissed every Friday and Saturday night. Now, we know there's... Millions of people that do that, they're stuck in that cycle, right? We work Monday to Friday, Friday comes, great, time to get pissed, forget about the whole week, <laughs> Saturday, same thing, yeah. Sunday we've got the depression because we know we're going back to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was even stuck in that cycle. And no one's going to bat an eyelid to, you know, you getting blind drunk. Now, I'll, I'll use this as an example again quickly before we wrap it up, Simon, you know, about six months ago, I came to work, and on the other side of the road, there was someone that was just blind drunk, passed out, had a bottle in his hand, um, lying down on the grass. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, there's people walking around him, people walking over him. No one gave a shit. Why? Because society has accepted this. Yeah. It's a norm. soon as we turn it into an illicit drug now, all of a sudden, everyone's perception and opinions all change. To me, whether whatever substance you're abusing or whatever you're using to numb, it's still a substance. Mm. And it does have the capacity, whether it's alcohol, whether it's any drug, to take a hold of your life. Um, just because one's socially accepted and the other one isn't, doesn't change it in my own personal view. You know, you go to a one-year-old's birthday party, to celebrate a one-year-old birthday and there'll be alcohol there. And I think to myself, how it's become so socially accepted that no one sees it any different. 
yet when it becomes drugs, everyone has a different opinion. Yeah. So regardless of what, what it is that you may be struggling with, what substance it is, um, you know, you've got to ask yourself some deep questions. Um, you know, where do you see yourself in six months if you continue this? Where do you see yourself in two years? Where do you see yourself in five years if you keep on this path? Yeah. Ask yourself, what are the things that I love? What are the things I value? Now, it's easy as a parent to say, I love my kids. I'm a family man. Your brain's always going to shoot that. But I've even realized now that my kids aren't my highest value. They're Mari's highest values. And as a team together, collectively, you know, business needs to be my highest value because as a team, as a mother and a father, there's someone caring for their kids um, and there's someone taking care of, of the business. And there's no shame in that. Yeah. Um, of course, my kids are, you know, top three in, in my values. Um, and that's something I've just come to realize. So my, my answer is you've got to find what you love, find what you value. And most of the time, the things that you value are the things you love. Love it, man. Yeah. Um, and a good example, you know, an easier one to do is if you're a parent and you're struggling with any kind of substance abuse, look at your kids and and say, you know, do it for them. If you can't do it for yourself, at least do it for them and yeah. reach out and ask for help. Yeah. Reach out and ask for help. I have so much respect um, for people that reach out and ask for help. That's something that I used to struggle with in the past. Now, moving forward, you know, whether it's business, whether it's, um, you know, other challenges that I get, because I've got access to so many people in my community, I, I've become a champion of asking for help. And every time I ask for help, I get a new level of life. Awesome, yeah. If I don't ask for help, I'm only going to know what I know, and that's it. Yeah. So, yeah, find your values, attach your values to the reason you want to change your life, not need to change. There's a massive difference. Um, and hopefully that goes, uh, you know, it puts you in the right stead, gives you, um, you know, a little bit of momentum to keep moving forward. Um, and definitely, without a doubt, 100%, you must link fitness and health to it as well. Awesome. Now, yeah, so I get high now just training. And exercising. Yeah. My new addiction is exercising and training. Yeah. Um, so I haven't changed the person I am. I've just learned to channel it in different ways. Um, and I and again, it's it's not something that it's only happened to me. You know, I follow a lot of other people on social media and I tend to see the same pattern. You know, yeah. something happened, it was a traumatic period of the life. People were gonna use something, take something, do something because they're feeling horrible. It's it's human nature. And then they end up finding what they love and it all changes. So I don't think I'm anyone unique. Um, I'm just someone that is, you know, uh, has gained a lot of courage from the things that I've gone through. And, um, you know, if I want to change something, I know that I have the, the capacity to change it and no one else is going to change it for me. Brilliant, man. Brilliant. And honestly, like that, you've basically you've spoken to this last hour or so i mean some of the things you've shared your story just thanks for sharing it man because yeah i didn't know what you were going to be prepared to say right here you put it all out there yeah. man for everyone to listen to and um you know it's great value for anyone that's going through something 
that is traumatic, you know, a, a similar experience to this because, you know, there's hope at the end of the day, you know, what you think is possible versus, you know, what is possible. Well, look, even if you don't think, at least, at least listen to this podcast and hear me and, and know that I was someone that was down and out, you know, su- suicidal, rock bottom, and um, now I'm at a, at a point in life where I've, I own my own business, um, a couple of uh, investment properties. Um, I've got another baby on the way due in February. Yep. Um, uh, I'm, I'm in love with myself. I actually love the person I am. Uh, again, that's something that we don't get taught. You know, the moment you go tell, you know, the world that you love yourself, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be called everything under the sun. What a hero, what a wanker, he loves himself. But I believe there's probably too many, too few of us that actually do love ourselves. Um, you know, and I think it's important to love the person you are. Um, it doesn't mean you need to flaunt it. But when I look in the mirror now, um, I don't see, I don't see shame. I don't see guilt. I see a man that I'm proud to be. Um, and if I can do it, Simon, I know anyone else can. And if anyone out, out there is listening to this and, and, and would like a little bit of help. Yeah, that's um, what I was going to ask you. How can they find you, Con? Like, you're one of the most prominent PTs now. Pretty good one, mate. So you got your own business. Um, I've got my own job. They can Google, obviously, my name, Con Prokos. There's yeah. enough information just, just there in Google with my name. Um, and if they want to uh, come see me for a free consult, my initial first consults are, all, are always free. You can register on my website. And I'll put the link below, w- guys, as well. All right, so you'll see the link here. Yeah, uh, cool. Um, and lastly for you, Simon, I'd like to congratulate you too, mate, because this is your first podcast. It's something that I know that you've been speaking, we've spoken about for years. Yeah. So I'd like you to... You know, and this is something we and you, you know, we spoke a couple of weeks ago and we said, you know what, man, let's, you know, we've been talking about it for a while. Let's just dump, jump in there. So yeah. um, you're a man that I respect highly. Um, you're a good man, a good family man. Um, we've remained friends for quite some years and I and uh, I see us being lifelong friends. So congratulations on your first podcast, mate. Um and I'd like to say thank you to, for the opportunity, mate. Ah, thank you, man. I mean, you're my first guest. So it's, uh, yeah, that, that's obviously going to be pretty special uh, moving forward, mate. And, uh, yeah, I'll never forget it. And I agree. We're going to be mates forever. And, you know, thanks yeah. for everything you've done as well, man. Thank you, Simon. You're a champion, mate. Thanks for the opportunity. No worries. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for listening, guys. If you got value from this, show us some love. Give us a thumbs up and a subscribe. We look forward to bringing you so much more content in the future. And remember that each and every one of us does have our own limitless potential.